0: You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other in Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. I should have introduced myself earlier, but I didn't. So in case you're new here, let you know my name is Jake Box. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm so glad that you're joining us uh, today today. As we uh, continue our uh, Advent series that we're calling A Thrill of Hope, but before I get into that, I think that uh, it's worth noting that um, Ancestry DNA kits sp- supposed to be one of the top-selling Christmas gifts again this season. So if if you're looking for a Christmas present haven't figured that out yet, you might want to go that route. Uh, It's estimated that about 30 million people in the U.S. have taken one of those uh, uh, tests, uh, at-home DNA, ancestry tests. And uh, I personally haven't done it yet. Uh, I do find it intriguing, though. I don't know how many of you all have done it, but I would think that you take one of those tests, one of the reasons why. Of course, it's cool to know where you're from and, you know, people you're related to, but probably when you're trying to find out who you've been related to, you're kind of hoping that you, you got someone really cool, right, in, in your family line. Like if I did that, I would really hope that it, it would dis- I would discover that maybe I'm related to like Abraham Lincoln. I mean, that, that would be awesome. You don't take those ancestry tests to find out that you were related to someone like John Wilkes Booth, though, right? Right? I mean, you're not going to be real excited about that. If you did find out that you had someone super shameful in your past, um, you probably wouldn't, like, make that real public knowledge. Probably keep, keep that to yourself a little bit, right? Because, you know, you don't like being linked to shameful people. Most people don't like being linked to shameful people. But, as we saw last week... When Matthew, who was one of Jesus' disciples, spent three years with Jesus, when he sat down to write his eyewitness account of Jesus, his life, he began with the genealogy. and he began with the genealogy because, well, first of all, because um, he wanted people to know that Jesus was actually related to the right kind of people. See, because when Matthew wrote his gospel account, He was uh, writing specifically at that time to a a Jewish audience. And he knew that that audience, those people, they would know that if Jesus was the Messiah, if he was going to be the Messiah, he had to be related to Abraham. And he had to be related to King David. And so right from the start, Matthew makes it clear, Jesus is related to the right kind of people. He was related to Abraham, he's related to King David. But Matthew then goes out of his way, interestingly, intriguingly, he goes out of his way to also highlight the fact that Jesus was related to some of the wrong people, some of, some of the people that you would think. Um, you know, I would probably try to cover that up. You know, I, I probably wouldn't draw that out. I would I would probably skip over those people. I certainly wouldn't highlight those people in Jesus's family line. But yet, Jesus, but Matthew goes out of his way to highlight to underscore the fact that Jesus was related to people that had. Scandalous backgrounds and messed up stories. And as we saw last week, even some that did some pretty <laughs> creepy things, right? And we think, okay, why, Matthew, why in the world would you do that? Why would you draw that out? And as we said again last week, it's because Matthew understood that these people, the scandalous people on Jesus, his family tree, they uh he's like he would say, okay, I, I drew those people out because one, they they're part of the story. I'm not gonna skip over them. But even more than that, it's because these people really highlight the point of the story. The point of the story of why Jesus had come. The point of the story of Jesus. See, Matthew was writing to a very religious group of people who believed that in order for God to love and accept you, you had to do certain things and you had to not do certain things, which is actually how, you know, most. World religions teach us to approach God, right? It's based off of this idea of, God, will you, will you bless me? Will you give me an A on the final that I'm about to take this week, right, students? And, or will, will you bless my business or bless my children because, God, look at me. I'm, I'm in church on Sunday morning. So like, look what I'm doing. Now you do something for me, right? Or look at what I've, what I've said I, I haven't been doing. Or what I promise I'll never do again, God. And so if I don't do that, or if I start doing this, then will you please bless me? And we, we, we approach God based on God will do for me if I do for him. And yet, Matthew knew that God's love and acceptance is, is not Contingent on what we do for him, but on what he has done for us. For he knew God treats us according to his great grace, and he knew that Jesus had come so that we could know and experience God's grace. So, right from the beginning, right from the very beginning of his account of Jesus' life, perhaps just to ensure that no one misses the theme of God's grace, Matthew draws attention to the people that we would have been tempted to skip over or to leave out. And in doing so, he highlights the fact that all along, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, that all along, God has given grace and mercy to people who do not deserve it. And so he includes, he goes out his way to highlight these scandalous people, because they're a perfect picture of who the Christmas story is for. So here's how he begins. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 1 says this, uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, so he's connected to the right people. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, his first little added commentary. Then Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, and we talked about Judah and Tamar last week. And then Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram, very cool name. Ram, the father of Abinadab, not as cool of a name. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. And here he goes again, adding some additional commentary, whose mother was Rahab. His mother was Rahab. Now, when Matthew's original audience, his Jewish audience he was writing to, when they heard, Rahab's name, they would have gasped. And they would have gasped because Rahab had a label. She had a label. And, you know, it's not uncommon for people to to get a label associated with their name that kind of describes what they're like, right? In fact, let me play a little bit of a a fun game for us right here. Test your knowledge. Um, In the New Testament, you've got someone like uh, John V. fill-in-the-blank the Baptist. Good job. Way to, way to go. Gold star for you. Uh, here's a harder one. In the Old Testament, you have uh, Uriah the... Nice. Good job. We're going to talk about him next week. It's going to be wild. Uh, okay. Here, here's another one. You've got Alexander the... Okay. Very good. And here's one. Buffy the... <laughs> My personal favorite, Jabba the... Yeah, exactly. Well, like those people... Rahab also had a, na- uh, a label, something associated with her name. She was Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the prostitute. Now, that creates some tension for people when you read through Jesus' genealogy, doesn't it? Because, see, not only was Rahab known as Rahab the prostitute, but she, was, she wasn't even Jewish. She was Canaanite. So right there in the middle of Jesus' genealogy, you have Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. And that creates tension, and it creates tension for us. If we're aware of this, it certainly would have created a lot of tension for Jesus' original audience because they were completely aware of the fact that in God's law, in the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, God had, set, had some really strict punishments for prostitutes. And he also said that people like Canaanites were not allowed to be intermarried with. And so, in the law of God, there were rules against having prostitutes and Canaanites in Israel's midst. And yet, in the genealogy of Jesus, right in the midst of the genealogy, is a Canaanite prostitute. And that creates a little tension, right? And Matthew, he could have left that out. He, he could have just stuck with the guy names. He was moving along with the guy names for a while, but then he has to say, and Rahab. And you think, okay, why in the world would you do that, Matthew? Why draw attention to that? But see, it's like I've been saying, it's because Matthew understood that Rahab embodied, that she illustri- illustrated, that she was this powerful picture of the point of the story. The point of why Jesus had come, and so let me try to explain to you why she's the point. And so, if you will, you can follow along. By going to Joshua, we're going to be in Joshua chapter two, a little bit of that, and Joshua chapter six, because those are the places where we actually get to learn a little bit about Rahab's story. All right, and so uh, let me just pick up in Joshua chapter two. Before I do, and you can, uh, oh, I've got the words up here for you as well. But um, before I do, let me give you a little context for what's about to happen. Okay, so. Uh, Israel has been freed from Egyptian slavery, has spent some time in the wilderness, and is finally about to enter the promised land, the land that God promised to them, the land of their ancestors, Abraham and, and uh, Isaac and Jacob. And so they're basically headed home. They're coming back to the promised land. And uh, they're about to cross the Jordan River and actually enter finally enter the promised land. Moses is no more. Joshua is now the leader of Israel. He's about to lead them in. But when they cross the Jordan River, they're entering into a land that's ruled by a city named Jericho. And so um, Joshua takes uh, two of uh, of, uh, the Israelites, two guys to be spies, and he sends them into Jericho. And uh, they're not very good at being spies because they get spotted right away. And so uh, they're spotted. Uh, they run off and hide. And they just so happen to hide in someone in Rahab the prostitute's house. And so the word gets to the king of Jericho. Hey, there's two Israelite spies among us. And so he sends guards to Rahab's house to demand that she uh, you know, brings the spies out. But Rahab lies. She lies to the guards when they show up at her house, which is tantamount to, to, to treason, the lie to the king. And she covers for these two guys. And so uh, she says, Yeah, they were here, but they left. And they just, right before the, the sunset, before the city gates closed, they got out of town. But you should still be able to catch them. You should head off after them. And the guards take off. And then after the guards left, Rahab goes upstairs to where she had hid the two spies. And we see this interaction. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8 says, Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard now the Lord, uh, how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did for Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And we heard of it. Our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. Now listen to what she says here. She says, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, this is an, an interesting combination of words she uses here to refer to uh, their God, to God, because uh, you see these words like uh, "Lord, your God is God." If you if you take the uh, actual specific you know literal translation of these words, what she's saying is, "Lord, this this was the the uh, most reverent name of God." in the Hebrew language. Now, we don't know if she was speaking Hebrew. We don't know. But whenever they were translating this, they tried to capture what she said, and they used this word to capture what she said. And she says, your God, which basically means the existing one is God, who is God, which this word for God means the ruler of all. So if you take what she says, literally, she's saying, here's what I know. Here's what I know. Here's what my family's come to know. Here's what we believe. We believe that your God is the existing one. And he's the ruler of all other gods. He's the ruler of the Canaanite gods. He's the ruler of my household gods. All the gods that I grew up believing in, here's what I've come to believe. Your God is actually the God. He's the ruler of all. Which is wild. Because, I mean, that's a lot of faith for her to make that statement. It's a lot of faith off of very little content. But she says, this is what I've come to believe. And then she says this, verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. And give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Here's how the two spies respond. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. And so she let them down by a rope through a window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Okay, so here Rahab banks her life on the hope that the true God, the the, the all-existing one, the, the ruler of all, this God is the type of God that would have grace and mercy on someone like her. Someone who was a prostitute and not an Israelite. And so banking on that hope, she hides these guys. She makes sure that these guys get away, and they do. And then she hopes and prays. And the spies, they get off to, back to Joshua, and they tell them all that they learned in Jericho uh and the next thing that happens in this story or as far as Rahab's part of the story goes is uh is the wild unusual story of the battle of Jericho if you grew up in church you probably learned about this using a flannel graph or something like that right because this is a wild wild story very unusual it's it's uh, it's the way that the story goes is that um God comes to Joshua and he says, Okay, you're going to take Jericho, but it's not going to be like normal. Here's, let me tell you what's going to happen. He says, You. And so he, he lay, downloads the plans to Joshua. Joshua then goes to his leaders and says, okay, here's what God said about how we're going to take Jericho. We're not going to need our weapons. We're just going to need our walking shoes because we're going to just walk around this city. And we're going to play some music. And then uh, we're going to do that once each day for six days. And then on the seventh day, we're going to walk around it seven times. And then we're going to yell really loud. Got any questions? And they're like, uh, yeah, like, uh, um. So, like, are we we just going to die? Or, like, are we just doing a parade or what? But that's what they end up doing. And that was the plan because God wanted Jericho and the surrounding nations to know that this victory was by his hands, that he is, as Rahab said, the one true God. And so Israel does that. They walk around the city each day for six days, and on the seventh day, they walk around seven times, and then they yell, really loud, and the walls collapse. And after the walls collapse, there's bloodshed. And there's horror, and there's violence. And there's a lot of stuff that we're super uncomfortable about. And understandably so. But in the midst of all of that bloodshed, God reaches down, and he saves the life of A Canaanite prostitute and her family and all that belonged to her. Joshua chapter six, starting at verse uh, twenty-two, we read this. Joshua said uh, to the men who had spied out the land, "Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her, in accordance with the oath, with your oath to her." Then if you skip down to verse 25, it says, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute. And guys, there's her label. God spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men. Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. And I love that last line. She lives among the Israelites to this day because the, I love that line because th- that puts this story in the context of history, right? This is not, and, and everyone lived happily ever after. This is, no, no, she's still with us to this, to this very day. For you see, oh, that was weird. It was worth noting because uh, she wasn't supposed to be with them. <laughs> this very day. Certainly, God could have just saved her. I mean, she did a good thing for these spies. She saved the spies. So they say, okay, we're going to save you. We're going to make sure that you don't die. We're, we got you, and then you can be on your way. But no, they, they do more than that. They not only save her and her family, but they bring her in to be among them. And in that, Rahab and her family would stand as a picture of, as a living example of this truth, that God is a God of mercy in grace, that he would even spare someone their law said should be judged and not allowed to live among them. For according to the Mosaic law, she was not allowed to live among them, but there she was. And then to further this point, to take it a whole step further, one day Rahab is hanging out and a guy named Salmon comes up and asks her if she could take her out for coffee. And then after that, for dinner, and I actually made that part up. But we do know that one thing leads to another, and, and, and a guy named Salmon, and a guy uh, uh, marries Rahab. And a Jewish man marries this Canaanite prostitute. And they have a child, and they name that child Boaz. And then after Boaz grows up, he would eventually marry a woman named Ruth. And Ruth has a whole a book of the Bible about her, telling her story. And then Boaz and Ruth would have a baby. And if you just go back to Matthew chapter 1, here's what we read. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David which means that Rahab was the great-great-grandmother of King David. And friends, oh, that's incredible. Because see, what that means is that God's grace was so big that it enveloped this woman to the point that not only was she saved, but she was brought in and she was given a new identity and a new family, and a new label. And that she would show up actually in the lineage of, in the family tree of, Jesus the Christ. And that wasn't because of something that she had done, but because of what God had done for her. And I think here, Matthew just wants to point that out to us. To show us that God through the story of Rahab, to point this out, that his love and forgiveness can extend beyond his law. That his mercy triumphs over judgment. Because according to the law, this this should not be. And yet God's grace gives Rahab what she did not deserve. And gives her a new label, a new identity, and a new family. Friends, I... I think that should fill us with hope. And the reason why is because um, I, think that, I think that we're a lot like Rahab in some ways. Because we, uh, if, you, if you take stock of your past or your present behavior, your public behavior, if you're honest with yourself, then I think there's a good chance that you would recognize that maybe you carry a label or two as well right and that uh, maybe you're reminded of this at times whenever uh, you see someone um, from your past and you've been trying to create uh, some distance between you and your label but you see someone you run into someone and they say oh man I remember you used to be such a and you realize hey in, your mind, in their mind you still, uh, you still have that label some of you, you, ha- you have a label that you carry, uh, that you just are aware of that um, your ex-wife or ex-husband has for you, or your ex-boyfriend or your ex-girlfriend, and some, some of us, we, we have labels because um, we, we know that we have addictions, and some of us have secret labels, don't we? We, are, we have labels that we know that we have, but we don't want anyone else to know that we have. And some of us have labels because we have, we have sin that we just can't ever seem to, to shake. And this is a big deal because the labels that we carry, they affect how we see ourselves and how we believe God sees us. And if you believe that God's love and acceptance for you is based on what you do for him or what you don't do, then you will have little confidence to no confidence at all that God will accept you and love you and bless you because your label reminds you of what you have done. Or what you have not done. And your label will stand in the way of a relationship with God. Because you think that this is how God sees you. And it is how you see yourself. And see guys, I think Matthew points to Rahab here. Because he was aware that she had a label. And it's because he also had a label, didn't he? Can anyone remember what, before meeting Jesus, what Matthew's label was? He was Matthew the tax collector, right? And in that day, tax collectors were the traitors to their own people. In the eyes of his community, he was the worst of the worst. And yet in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew, the one who wrote Matthew, he's telling the story of uh, of a day when he was actually doing the very thing that brought him so much shame in his community. He was collecting taxes, and Jesus came up to his tax-collecting booth, came up to him, and he looked him in the eye. And Jesus did not say, Hey, Matthew, once you clean up your act and you stop collecting taxes, why don't you come follow me? Jesus did not say, Hey, Matthew, once you put this label down, and you distance yourself from it, and you beat yourself up for it enough, then come follow me. Jesus did not say, hey, Matthew, once you do enough to earn a different reputation and a different identity, then come follow me. No, Matthew tells us, Matthew chapter 9, that Jesus walked up to Matthew With his label in full display, he's collecting taxes right then. And he said to him, hey, come follow me. Come follow me. And so Matthew, when he sets down to write his account of Jesus' life, he wanted everyone to know right from the start the transforming power of the grace of God. And so he goes out of his way to mention Rahab, to make sure we don't miss the point of the story of Jesus. For friends, here's the point of the story. God's grace gives us the hope of a new label, of a new identity, of a new family. And friends, when I say the word hope here, I just want to remind you, just like I said last week, I'm not talking about wishful thinking. That's how we use the word hope. But the Bible uses the word hope to speak of something that's of life-shaping certainty. A life-changing reality that's based on things unseen but rooted in God's character and his activity for us. And this is the hope, friends, that Jesus came to bring. It's the hope, it's the life-shaping certainty that we can be who we never were. That we can be someone brand new. That in Jesus, because God's grace is so great, it can extend beyond what we've done. And it can make us someone new. And give us a new label. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're told this. If anyone who trusts in Jesus, who believes that this is what Jesus has done for you, this is who you become as you receive his grace. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. The old what? The old label, the old identity, who you once were, and now you are brand new. Why? Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's what? His grace that he's lavished on us, which has made us what? 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. We have a new label. A new identity. A new family. Ephesians 2.10 takes it so far as to say, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Church family, because of what God has done for you, you have been given the hope of a new label. You are a new creation in Christ, which means that you are the forgiven, the redeemed, the cleansed, the beloved, the child of God, God's masterpiece. By God's grace, that's who you are. And just like Rahab the prostitute, who by the grace and mercy of God isn't labeled as Rahab the prostitute in Matthew chapter 1, but is instead shown to be Rahab, the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus the Christ. And just like Matthew the tax collector became Matthew the disciple, you and I in Christ receive a new label. We're for the forgiven, the accepted, the beloved children of God. That's who you are. That's the point of the story. See, Jesus came to give us what we didn't deserve, that based on what God has done for us, not what we do for God, we get to become someone brand new. And we can lay our labels down. And you are no longer the cheater. You are no longer the coveter. You are no longer the unfaithful. You are no longer the unwanted. You are no longer the unlovable. You are no longer the screw-up. You are no longer the whatever you fill that blank in. You are now the beloved child of God. Not based on what you've done. But based on what God's done, because what God has done is bigger than what you've done. And it covers what you have done. And it replaces what you have done. And now you are in Christ brand new. It's the hope, friends. It's the hope of a new label based on what God has done for you. The point of Christmas is that God has done for you what you could could not do for yourself. And if through faith you enter into a relationship with him based on what he's done for you, then you are no longer who you used to be. And you're given the hope, the life-changing certainty of a brand new glorious label. And friends, this Christmas, let that fill you with hope. Let that fill you with hope. We're going to end this morning by taking communion as we do each Sunday. And the tables are up front, tables are in the back, and it's open to anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, and that we just ask that you believe what you're taking. But this morning, as we take communion, we're doing this in order to help us reflect on what God has done to give us the hope that we've been talking about. For when we take communion, we are remembering that Jesus didn't just come, to live for us, but also to live and then to willingly die as our substitute in our place. You see, the reason we can receive what we don't deserve is because in our place on the cross, when his body was broken and his blood was spilled, Jesus received what we did deserve the punishment and the condemnation for our sins. He took our punishment. And he paid our debt that our labels often represent. And because Jesus received the punishment he did not deserve, we can be given a new identity and a new label that we did not earn, but was given to us by God's grace. So as we take communion this morning, let's rejoice. For this is what Jesus has done for us. He died for us. That we could forgi- that we could be forgiven, the accepted, the beloved children of God, and that's who we are. Let that fill us with hope. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. Help us believe that Your grace is more powerful than our labels. Help help us believe that Jesus died to pay for our sins. Their labels often represent and help us embrace the hope offered to us in Christ. That because of him, you've secured secured for us new labels. That we are the forgiven, the redeemed, the accepted, the loved loved children. Your children. Teach us to live in accordance with who you say we are. And we may glorify you in light of how you have so graciously loved us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.